At Arendt, we regularly organize webinars that we are pleased to share on our podcast channel and on our website www.arendt.com. The following webinar was recorded on the 14th of May and is entitled Japanese Institutional Investors Allocation to Alternative Asset Classes with our partner Stéphane Karolchuk, Jack Wang, Fund Manager at Asset Management One Alternative Investment and Sergei Diakov, Head of TKO Investment Management Japan. So thank you all of you for joining this Avant webinar series. The focus of this webinar is Japan and the appetite for Japanese institutional investors for alternative strategies. I'm Stefan Korolczyk. I'm a partner of the firm uh, in the investment funds group um, of Luxembourg law firm Arante Medona. I've been in the firm and this team for the past 15 years. I'm based in Hong Kong for the past 10 years. Um, and before that, I was in, in New York City and, and in Luxembourg, obviously. For this webinar, I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, two distinguished speakers um, and distinguished professionals. Jack Wong is a fund manager, infrastructure investment team of uh, Asset Management One Alternative Investment, in short, AMOI. Uh, Jack joined AMOI as a fund manager in April 2016. Jack has structured and helped establish Japan's first infrastructure debt fund focusing on project finance loan for Japanese institutional investors in July 2016. Jack also successfully closed the first fund, Cosmic Blue PF Trust Lily, in July 2017, and second fund, Cosmic Blue PF Lotus FTP Rave, in November 2018. He has executed various transactions globally, including uh, power projects in Asia, Middle East, and North America. Jack is also responsible for sourcing, managing, monitoring, project finance loan, as well as day-to-day -day fund management. Before joining uh, AMOI, Jack was an associate with the Global Project Finance Division of Mizuho Bank, mostly specializing in securitization and environmental matters. Uh, and before that, he was part of the Sustainable Development Department of the bank. So thank you very much, Jack, to be with us. With Jack, we're very happy to have Sergei Diakov, who is the head of Japan office at TKO Investment Management, based in Tokyo as well. Uh, Sergey um, spent 14 years between 2000 and 2014 at Citigroup uh, in the investor services sales, uh, successfully in the Netherlands, in the UK, and in Japan. Um, he also spent a number of years at Rogers Investment Advisors, uh, also based in Tokyo, and since 2019, Uh, is the head in Japan of uh, TKO Investment Management. For those that are not familiar with TKO, it's an asset management firm that manages about 22 uh, a billion um, in a variety of asset class, the headquarter being in, uh, in uh, Paris, France. So thank you very much to, uh, to you, Jack and Sergey, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me uh, on this uh, webinar. And thank you also for the uh, 350 plus people that are uh, attending by telephone. We're really uh, happy to have you. Um, this is the third part of, a series of, of uh, a series of webinars which we have organized for the past couple of weeks due to the circumstances. Uh, we've had the webinars on, on liquid investment funds and alternative investment funds and the impact of COVID-19 on these funds. And this is a slightly different series that focuses more on, on selected countries. And here, as you all know, we are going to speak about Japanese institutional investors and more specifically their appetite for 
uh, alternative asset class. In the coming weeks, we're going to have something more focusing on, on Korea, and we'll continue that in the coming weeks and months. Um, just as a housekeeping uh, point, uh, feel free to visit our website as well as download our app. Uh, you will see at the end of the slides we have a number of very interesting links for you uh, to, uh, to follow and to, um, to download. Um, we um, also do not hesitate to ask any questions you may have during this webinar. We have the chat box and Sergey, Jack and myself can receive your questions and answer uh, during the webinar, which will be recorded. So basically, for those of you that uh, are not able to uh, listen to it live, uh, you can uh, listen to it later on. Let's uh, deep dive in the uh, topic itself. So since the adoption of negative interest rates in Japan in 2016, Japanese institutional investors have increased their allocation to alternative asset classes. Not that they were not doing it before, but clearly from then, uh, the surge of yield has pushed most of these large institutions to look for a different source of yield and look for alternative investment. Japan Government Pension Investment Fund, JPIF, which needs no introduction in the world's largest pension fund, uh, as well as Japan Post Bank, Japan Post Insurance, have been sort of the trendsetters uh, in, this, uh, in this field and, and have shown over the past four or five years certainly an appetite for different type of asset classes in the alternative fields. Yet, uh, if we look at JPIF in particular, um, um, we're quite far from the 5% allocation which they can do to alternative asset classes. We're actually at 0.49, which is sort of they have 10 times more uh, leeway to, to invest in, in alternatives. So the discussion with Jack and Sergey will know the structure of this uh, Japanese institutional market, as well as those institutions and investors like the back of their hands, uh, will, will shed some light on all those questions uh, you may have in this respect. So we'll go through uh, an overview of COVID-19 situation in Japan, because that's kind of the elephant in the room. We sort of wanted to share with you also, with Sergey and Jack, uh, a little bit what's the situation over there right now. Then we'll go through uh, a slide and, and consideration that are, I believe, extremely valuable here. What is in the mind of Japanese institutional investors? What, when, when you approach them or when you consider approaching them, what do you need to have in mind and what have Jack and Sergey in mind when they go and, and pitch for business uh, with these institutional investors? Then we'll spend a little bit of time on the structuring part because, you know, increasingly uh, structuring and it's, it's extremely important for, uh, for, for a proper investment and to avoid, uh, you know, uh, uh, leakages and to avoid, you know, uh, uh, the improper governance of, of uh, your investment. You need to have the proper investment structure. And so Jack and Sergey both have funds in Luxembourg. And so we, we're going to go through the most usual forms used in Luxembourg uh, for these kind of asset classes, namely our limited partnership and our rates, and speak a little bit about that. But perhaps um, speaking about COVID-19, and I, I wanted Jack, Sergey, I mean, this, this virus uh, that, that was spreading over Asia, then in Europe, then in the U.S., clearly affects how we live, uh, how we work, how we run our businesses right now, I believe, for the time being, uh, there's this kind of state of emergency rule in, in, in Japan, not strictly speaking a lockdown, but sort of a de facto lockdown. Maybe starting with you, Jack, and then you, Sergey. Can you share a little bit with us how your daily life over there and how this impacts your business, Jack? 
Sure. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Stefan, um, and thank you very much for an introduction and the uh, and inviting me uh, for this webinar. Uh, so yes, in terms of COVID-19, uh, maybe I'll just start off with the uh, with the positive news first. Um, is that um, uh, according to the news, at least um, in, uh, by night today, uh, the government is ready to take off the uh, the state of emergency for 39 um, out of the 47 prefectures um, in Japan. So I think that that's a very positive uh, news uh, for for us in terms that the situation has, has gone better. Um, I think the government's ready to take off the state of emergency. Of course, that being said, uh, Tokyo, um, it, it looks like it's not going to be lifted. So Tokyo will still be in a state of emergency. Um, in terms of how it has impacted our lives and business, um, as Stefan mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, um, it, it is a de facto lockdown, I would say, because this is the first time that the Japanese government has issued a state of emergency order, and uh, they do not have legal background to actually enforce such order. Um, they they can instruct, for example, companies to, to stop operating, uh, but there is no penalty um, if such company just decides uh, not, not to listen. Um, so in that sense, I mean, they can issue the order, um, they can request or ask uh, uh, businesses to, to stop operating, but they just do not have the legal background to uh, to enforce uh, such order. Uh, however, um, I guess being in in Japan um, and with the Japanese culture, uh, they I mean businesses are taking this quite seriously. Um, they are heeding to to most of the uh, the government's orders. But I think compared to other parts of the world, it's not that uh, strict, uh, honestly speaking. Uh, so, for example, um, of course, um, you know, grocery shops are they're, they're still open, but even restaurants, uh, the government has allowed them to stay open until let's say 8 p.m. and only serve alcohol until you know, 7 p.m. So it's not as strict as uh, as you see uh, elsewhere um, uh, around the around the globe. Um, in terms of business, um, it, it has had an impact as well. Um, I think we were one of the first movers to uh, to start from a work from home policy. So we we've been working um, at home since the beginning of March, but I believe most Japanese businesses have uh, only started uh, maybe after the the state of emergency that was declared um, in in April. Um, and from a Japanese culture, um, it you know working from home is not rooted in the Japanese culture. It's very much I go to the office. Uh, you you meet you meet your coworkers. You meet your boss. Um, so it has had an impact um, as you know uh, working from home. We we cannot do that. Um, and some other you know maybe some minor parts that has impacted how how business operate is again with the Japanese culture. We always deal with uh, you know seals and, and stamps rather than signatures. Mm -hmm. um, and of course these seals are locked up um, in, in our company safes. So without being uh, having access, um, it's either someone has to go to the office to, to have access to these seals to make sure the documents can be stamped, um, it's in good order, um, or you know it, it, the whole process gets slowed down. Um, of course, um, we are seeing business adjusting. So there are more and more places where they are now accepting electronic signatures, um, even banks um, where traditionally it just cannot accept anything else other than the registered seal. Um, have become more flexible um, and you know accepting, for example, an, an email uh, approval or electronic signature in, in place of, of those seals. 
thank, thank you, Jack. So uh, not, not an official lockdown, but a practical lockdown sort of uh, uh, and a slowdown of activity more than anything else with a little bit of flexibility, which, uh, which helps company to, to, to sort of operate in a, in a sort of uh, survival mode, I guess, to, to, so to speak. Uh, uh, Sergey, what's, uh, what, what's your view on that and uh, what, what's your, your own experience? You sitting there uh, in Marunucci, so I guess over there it's a little bit, it's a little bit quieter than usual, uh, but, but still uh, a little bit of activity yet. Yes, uh, thank you, Stefan. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for, for your introduction early on. Indeed, it is uh, quite a bit quieter in Marunucci. It is practically a ghost town with most restaurants most facilities, most, I would say 99% of the shops closed in this area and you see very, very little people in the street. Uh, and that you can contrast with residential areas where we, we all live. And uh, uh, that's actually, if you walk around in the residential area, you feel like nothing has changed. Everybody's out in the street, there are lines, you know, people are queuing for groceries and supermarkets and so on. So. I arguably, you know, I can say that Marinucci is not a bad place to be now if you want to practice social distancing. Um, in practical terms, I think when you look at financial institutions specifically, what is happening at the moment, I think it's fair to say that probably 99% of face-to-face -face meetings uh, have been cancelled and no longer taking place. Um, people have to use Zoom, people have to sort of um, revert to, to conference calls as everywhere else in the world. And when you look at the way the Japanese offices are staffed, I think still the back office and middle office teams very often have to go to the office and to perform you know, the daily NAV calculations on the uh, office systems, which are not available for the remote access. Whereas the uh, front office staff, the sales staff, the investment staff very often uh, that predominantly rely on email communications and phone communications, I would say probably 90% uh, of the cases are currently working from home. Uh, we've got some numbers on the on the screen as well here. I think uh, the overview of the COVID situations, I believe this is uh, somewhat old, uh, an, an old survey. The latest uh, prediction of the GDP that I have seen uh, was uh, the one I saw on the 5th of May. It came from BNP Paribas, chief economist, who said that the uh, uh, the Japanese GDP is likely to go down uh, this quarter by 33%. And by comparison, and put this to put this in the perspective, in 2009, the financial crisis, Lehman shock, the GDP went down by 19%. So there is no denial that this is going to have a severe impact. Right. Thank, thank you, Sergey. You're right. This this uh, this slide that we have there on the on the screen it dates back March. It's an interesting Bank of Japan survey that that sort of uh, reflects a little bit the sentiment. Uh, and it's interesting to compare between September 2019 and March 2020. Well, uh, generally speaking, I think that the sentiment has has worsened. Um, and will worsen according to what uh, what is reflected there. Um, and the economic conditions uh, was not necessarily that great. And obviously, this COVID-19 will not help if we were receiving the March uh, and the April 2020 uh, projections. I think that it would be even uh, worse. Um, and we'll definitely follow that very closely. Indeed, the, the figures and the projection for GDP growth are um, are not extremely uh, positive. 
Now, let's go into the topic. Uh, and then thank you again for, for sharing uh, you, your sort of day-to-day -day views uh, on, on the market and on the situation over there at the moment. Um, when you look at Japanese institutional investors, and maybe staying with you, Sergey, there's this uh, interesting map there uh, regarding the position of Japan when it comes to institutional investors, the number thereof, and how many of them are investing into alternative asset classes. And I, I, my understanding is that you have uh, legions of small pension funds and small institutional in Japan. Can you can you share a little bit your, your thoughts on that and your, your experience of the, of the Japanese institutional market, just to set the scene, and then we'll go to Jack for the, their, their investment strategy. Uh, definitely, Stefan. Well, Japan, as everybody knows, is home to some of the largest institutional investors out there. I mean, everybody knows GPIF with their 1.7 trillion portfolio, you know, post-bank and post-Japan post-bank and Japan post-insurances. Are sort of coming um, uh, in the top segment as well, with uh, similarly, you know, about 1.8 trillion, and I think Japan Post Insurance has got about uh, 600 billion portfolio. Japan Pension Fund Association is very large, and so on. And typically, when you look at the Japanese institutional investors, there are three categories that you may like, you know, broadly over generalizing, but there are extremely large investors such as JPIF and Japan Post, the world cut comes to pitch to them and uh, they allocate such vast amount of resources and their tickets, individual tickets, uh, just because of their size are so big that it is extremely impractical for them to work with each of the asset manager, which, which of the fund manager that comes to pitch to them. So these sort of very large institutions tend to work with gatekeepers, not because they uh, lack the expertise in-house, but very often just because this is a, for them, this is a much more efficient way to deal with the overwhelming numbers of strategies that are pitched to them. I would say the second tranche is where we see the insurance companies, where we see some of the largest Japanese asset managers, and we see some of the, definitely we see the mega banks and some of the more sophisticated Regional banks are in pension funds. These are typically staffed with very uh, high-quality professionals. You know, they are proficient in English. Um, they've got very good research capabilities, very capable teams, and are capable of allocating uh, tickets from, you know, 10 million U.S. up to uh, 50 million, sometimes up to 100 million or, or you know, even more. So uh, those typically are very easy to access as well. And then there comes a big number of investors, which very often are not even um, designated as institutional investors. Uh, there are literally, there's over 100 regional banks in Japan. Uh, there are several thousand pension funds in Japan, and the amounts of assets they have are very significant. However, very often it's, it's, it's very difficult to access these categories of investors. Um, not least because a lot of them actually don't have a working command of the English language. So the, you need to sort of be able to communicate in Japanese and to be local in order to access them. But also for legal reasons, for example, pension funds are not defined as institutional investors and uh, professional investors. And as such, they cannot, uh, you cannot pitch to them any strategies directly. They always need to be a gatekeeper in the middle and they always need to be somebody who kind of takes the uh, the responsibility uh, for the particular pension fund strategy. 
So there is a there is a vast variety of ways to access. And one thing I would like to add as well is that there is a there's a very large retail market, and the high net worth individual market is kind of a sub-segment of that market, if you like. Mm. Japan doesn't really have the culture of the uh, family office, and the concept of private bank is rather underdeveloped in Japan as compared to the to the um, uh, to the rest of the world. However, uh, securities uh, brokers in Japan kind of take that function of the private banks, and uh, uh, there is also there are also a very important distribution channel for alternative investment uh, strategies to high net worth individual um, client segments. Thank you, Sergey. And and it is very interesting to have this distinction of three classes and then understand about this gatekeeper, which we're going to talk in more detail later. But certain using gatekeepers for the convenience of having somebody centralizing, others having to use gatekeepers. Uh, and here on this slide, what we see is that 66% of these Japan-based institutional invest at least in one alternative asset class, which is well not, not necessarily surprising. Uh, and the other aspect which is interesting is to see that, that Japan, not, not that surprisingly, um, comes just after China in terms of number of institutional investors. So uh, that is very uh, interesting. Now, Jack, maybe looking a bit more into the strategies that those Japanese institutional investors uh, are interested in uh, in terms of alternative strategies. And here, I'm, I'm a bit more interested in those that, that sort of exceed the average uh, for Asia. Uh, and I see in particular the, the private debt parts, the hedge fund, the private equity. Uh, so perhaps if we leave aside natural resources and, and real estate, which we are not going to really discuss in this uh, particular webinar, can you give, give us your view on, on the structure, as you can see there, and a little bit of feeling of what do they like to buy? Sure, Stefan. So I think, um, I mean, at least in the recent years, um, a lot of it is driven by the lower interest rates um, in Japan. Um, again, many institutional investors just have nowhere uh, to put their cash as, you know, domestic yield is down, uh, domestic bonds aren't, um, aren't yielding anything. So they do need to look uh, for alternatives. Which is why I would say um, the reason behind it is more percentage of Japanese investors um, doing uh, private debt um, or hedge fund or private equity is it, for that particular reason. And I think particularly for private uh, private debt, um, again, I think Japanese investors um, they they like to you know mitigate their risk um, as well. And I think they see debt as an asset class that can bring in bring them in the returns that uh, that they want while mitigating some of the risks um, that's associated, for example, with, uh, with private equity. Um, and maybe for hedge funds, again, I'm not an, too much of an expert on, uh, on hedge funds, but the Japanese investors, they, they do like funds that are liquid. Um, so funds that they can, they, they can redeem, um, doesn't matter if it's, uh, let's say, in three months time or a little bit longer, uh, but they do like um, funds that are more liquid. Uh, which is why maybe compared to private equity or private debt, uh, some would prefer um, hedge funds just so that um, you know they can they can have the redemption um, whenever whenever they need to. Mm -hmm. Thanks, thanks, Jack. Um, uh, Sergey, what do you think? You, you you've been active in pretty much all these asset classes, and, and in particular on the on the PE hedge fund side. Um, can, can you comment on on those two uh, 
on the SWIN in particular, or generally what you see on this diagram? I, I, I definitely agree with Jack, is that there's a very strong preference for liquidity um, mm -hmm. in the market, especially towards, I would say, you know, pension funds, regional banks, towards that non-professional investor side. But very often people are making the first investments in alternative investments. You know, there is a there is a saying uh, which is somewhat a cliche that uh, people in Japan have been investing in JGBs for most of their life. You know, I think this is a this is a, an, an exaggeration, but but it is mm -hmm. also there is a there is a there's a, some aspect of truth to this is that for many institutions in the recent years have been making their first allocation to this asset class. And when you look at then how do they, where do they put the money in that asset class? And then very often, because liquidity is such a big concern, um, they typically start with hedge funds, as I think the most right. liquid side of this. And then, you know, when they look at the lockup, um, at the lockup strategies, then I think very high on the list is real estate. Also, because mm -hmm. I think traditionally people are familiar with real estate, you know, Japanese have always been investing in real estate. Um, so they would start with real estate, you know, very often they would then next on the list would come an infrastructure investment. And, you know, when they're comfortable with that, maybe uh, they would go more into private equity strategies. So I would say that's the, that's the order in which uh, people tend to look at things. And also because, um, you know, uh, cash yield as such is very important uh, for a lot of investors. Uh, Credit products uh, have also been very, very important, and this is why we see, you know, the the uh, I think on this particular diagram, private debt is shown as a relatively high number, and this is something definitely something that we see empirically in the market, especially in the recent years. The allocation to this asset class has uh, has risen sharply. Thank you, thank you, Sergey. Maybe to give a bit more granularity to what we've been saying here, we've put based on a pre-king uh, uh, survey. Uh, that was issued uh, a few a few months ago. Um, a, a little bit more on the different strategies, the various strategies in PE, in hedge fund, in infra, and in debt, uh, which sort of uh, gives a little bit more detail on 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 each of the asset class that we've been talking about. Can you briefly comment on that, maybe to quickly, and also give us an idea, maybe by geographies, because what we are also interested is. Are they primarily interested in the rest of Asia? Are they primarily interested in, you know, the US, Europe, or do they have a global approach? Uh, and that would definitely be different depending on the asset class. But perhaps in your own field, you can give us a feeling as to what they, what they like uh, in terms of geographies. Maybe starting with you, Sergey, with a PE and a hedge fund, and then you, Jack, with the infrastructure and private debt. Uh, sure, Stefan. So uh, looking at this, um, I mean, some of these numbers, as we discussed before, I find somewhat uh, puzzling. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they are correct uh, per se, but, um, you know, when we look at the PE here, venture capital is uh, uh, presented with 73%, which I find a very high number when you look mm -hmm. at um, the actual, you know, like based on my experience of actually speaking with, uh, with, with investors. I would say for private equity, most certainly the largest, the, the most common type of private equity that uh, is popular in Japan is global buyout and right. mega buyout. So I think one thing which is very important to say here is, um, you know, uh, Japan, I think the, the investors are risk averse uh, to a very large degree. I think it's ingrained in the culture. 
So uh, a, a, a manager's track record, a manager's um, the size of the manager's AUM, uh, and you know, in the end of the day, the performance, the low volatility play a very big role uh, in Japan in terms of the sort of preference for the type of managers, so type of strategies they they uh, they're looking for. So like large mega buyout firms investing globally. Mm-hmm. I think is something which I would say empirically is something that that we see a lot. There is a relatively small uh, Japanese domestic private equity scene. There are a couple of you know a couple of firms that are very well known that have been around for for many many years. But still, compared to the uh, to the global uh, industry, the global buyout, the Japanese scene is a relatively small. But I would say there's also been investments going to that segment as well. Um, on the venture capital side, I think it's interesting to see there's actually um, a lot of corporate VCs happening in Japan. And for example, mm. trading companies and corporates investing into funds in order to discover uh, potential companies that they can then strategically uh, develop or help develop or help to bring to Japan or help to bring to the Asia Pacific region. And uh, I think this is where what is driving this rather high venture capital um, mm-hmm. allocation here. Whereas I would say traditional investors investing for profit, just investing for the for the uh, to achieve a certain IRR. I would say the venture capital um, portion of the private equity is slightly underrepresented in in my personal in my personal estimate. Um, with regards to the geographical allocation for this particular class, I would say you know. I would say this applies in general to all the asset classes. You know, Japan is Japan as a region comes first, uh, and then you would look global slash US. And mm-hmm. for many years, Europe as an investment region actually was not was I would say you know it goes far as to say it was almost non-existent. Um, in recent years, that has certainly changed in private equity as well as in uh, especially in debt in private debt. I think we've seen a lot of European managers come up, and uh, there's been significant allocation to Europe. But traditionally, I think Japan and uh, and US have been have been very very prominent. Um, on the hedge fund side, once again, you know, high liquidity and low volatility are extremely important, and also strategies that would be that would be perceived to deliver a modest return in all market conditions. So Japan. I would say, you know, in general, people don't don't look really go after very very high returns. In fact, this is the only country, uh, to my knowledge, and definitely in my own experience, where one of the comments we often hear, we consistently hear from investors, is your return is too high. We <laughs> want we want we want a risk which is we, we we could live with a return which is about 200 to 300 basis points less than that, but but with a with um with with a better risk you know that's the kind of a comment which i think is typical to japan so from that perspective you look at the selection of strategies here for the uh, hedge fund multi-strategy macro equity especially equity sort of uh, um uh, uh market neutral type of equity strategies i think have been uh, have been very popular um, if I may say a couple of words about the debt as well, because Tokyo Capital is a, is a, is a, has a very large private debt practice. Um, credit, obviously, as I said, has been a uh, has been very high on the priority list because of the inherent type of you know the providing the cash yield. Uh, 
Japan has got some of the largest investors in CLOs, uh, especially Norin Chukin. I think they're famous for having about $72 billion uh, in AAA tranches of U.S. CLOs. In fact, the exposure has been such so large by top Japanese institutional investors that the Japanese regulator last year, they've issued a caution to these investors. And I believe that the by now the numbers of like new purchases have actually come down. But, um, but not only that, but also, as I said, you know, we've seen a lot of um, interest going for the private debt, for the direct lending uh, type of strategies, uh, providing the... Um, uh, providing the, uh, 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 you know, it's kind of the alternative uh, revenue stream with uh, IR, with IR and the, uh, uh, and the between five and seven uh, percent, which is, seems to be in the sweet spot for what uh, a lot of people want for their credit investments. Right. Th thanks a lot, Sergey. That's that's a very very uh, detailed and, and good, very valuable view on on that. Jack, speaking on, on more the infrastructure part of things and the, and the private debt, I mean, your specialty is clearly infrastructure debt, right? And so um, can, can you comment on the figures you're seeing there and also on what, uh, what Sergey has been mentioning in terms of, of allocation, yield appetite? Uh, the slide we have after, for which I would like to keep a little bit of time, will summarize all the key considerations of this institutional, but maybe just on the figures for the time being. Sure, no problem. Um, so maybe maybe let's focus on infrastructure debt, that is, uh, as that is my uh, specialty. Um, so yeah, 62%. Um, uh, we do see a lot of Japanese investors um, do now allocate more uh, towards infrastructure debt. And they like infrastructure because it gives them, um, uh, it's a strategy that can bring them uh, a stable income. And that's important to them uh, because Again, as I mentioned a little bit before, um, many of these institutional investors, um, they have traditionally invest in, invested in JGB, but they are not no longer yielding. Uh, however, they are getting massive redemptions from those JGBs that they might have bought 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, where they have, again, just nowhere to put the cash. Um, mm -hmm. However, they don't want to put the whole thing into, let's say, a strategy such as private equity, where it's more volatile. They still want that income, they still want that yield, uh, they still want that fixed income. Um, so uh, we do see uh, many investors are now are allocating some of that bucket um, towards, let's say, a strategy such as infrastructure debt, uh, whether it be a senior mezzanine or even sometimes infra equity, just because they can bring them that um, uh, you know, fixed income that they traditionally invested in, 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 government, uh, in government bonds. Uh, however, mm -hmm. they are giving up uh, liquidity uh, but I think that's a price that uh, basically they're willing to pay for just so that they can get a little bit more yield um, with their investment. Right. Well, thank you very much, Jack. Yes, that's, uh, again, uh, a very uh, enlightening on what, what, do they, what do they have in mind and what, what risk they're ready to take or, you know, uh, um, what consideration they, they have in mind to, to gain a little bit of yield compared to these JGBs, which... You know, it's obviously something that I've heard so many, so many times that this, this massive amount of cash that they cannot invest uh, domestically and needs to find its way to something yielding a little bit uh, more. Now, the key consideration of Japanese institutional investors, that's, um, that's a very important slide. We could have spent, and we could spend an hour on that uh, with Jack and Sergey, but we have a, a limited time. So I would like to spend 
uh, five or six minutes on that, and then uh, two or three minutes on the gatekeeper role, which is also very specific to the Japanese market. Uh, we, we put the first one, experience, track record, size of managers, I mean, difficulties for first-timers to, to come in as the overarching sort of uh, consideration. Uh, the others do not necessarily have a specific order, but that one does. That's why it's in bold. Um, it's really the key to, uh, to enter into that market. Uh, maybe staying with you, Jack, uh, give us a little bit on, on, on that, the experience, track record, size of manager, what do they expect? When do you, can you actually start speaking to them? Uh, and maybe circling back to what Sergey mentioned about the mega institutional, uh, the, the sort of tier two, uh, and the, the more local or regional ones. Uh, what, what's your experience in this respect? And if you don't mind, we'll, we'll stay with, uh, with you and then with Sergey to go through each of them. Uh, in, a, in a sort of a very brief way uh, for those that follow this, this experience and track record parts. Jack. Sure. I mean, uh, with Japanese investors, um, again, experience, track record, size, it, it matters to them greatly. I, I mean, we have here first-timers may be difficult, and, and that, that's basically the case. If you haven't had a track record with, uh, let's say, other investors outside of Japan, or, or if this is your first fund, you're, you're not going to have so much luck, uh, I think, with Japanese investors. They really want to see that track record, making, make sure that, you know, your previous fund has performed, it has, it has performed consistently before they are ready to, to allocate um, their capital. And I know we have that discussion on the gatekeeper later on, but again, that's another reason why they hire gatekeeper, to make sure that the gatekeeper has done the due diligence to make sure that they, they do have all these traits that, that they want. Uh, maybe though, I, I'll give you an exception, and um, and the exception is actually us because uh, our first fund it was launched in 2016. It was our first infrastructure debt strategy, and I think we've been quite successful. Um, and I think part of the reason of that is because we we did have the brand. Uh, you know, we, we had the Mizuho brand. We had uh, we had experience. Um, you know, when we were at Bankers and Mizuho, and you know, we had key investors that were that was willing to. Uh, kind of get this platform platform launched, and and I think it's because you know we we were located in Tokyo. Now uh, we're based out of Tokyo. Uh, we're a Japanese asset management firm. I think it gets it gave us that edge to be able to launch our first fund. But again, generally speaking, um, without track record, it, it will be hard to uh, hard to get your product across. Um, mm -hmm. Right, Sergey, you want to comment on that? I mean, it's a I guess this is something which is true for every uh, every institutional market, but even more so for Japan, right? So, uh, what what's your experience in this respect? I would say I would agree with everything that Jack has said. I would just want to give sort of one statistic, and maybe this is a this is a, once again a gross overgeneralization, but I think as a foreign manager, let's say a hedge fund manager coming to Japan with a fund which is less than a hundred million in size AUM, I think you'll have a hard time raising money. And I think, you know, it's, 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 I'm, I'm sure there will be cases of people who have done it very successfully, but as a general kind of a principle, um, the funds have to be of a certain size, you know, ideally over 500 million. Um, and the track record has to be significant. You know, you have to be on your third or your fourth vintage, ideally, and, uh, uh, you know, have over at least over five years of track record if you are hedge fund and also ideally your volatility has to show has to be very very low 
uh, and uh, you have to have no years in which you suffered a loss as a, as a, mm-hmm. as a liquid strategy. Mm-hmm. So all of these things, uh, you know, just because there is such an enormous supply of strategies, um, yeah. it, it's just very easy to pass on and to move to something else. And, and because, uh, you know, it's, as I said, you know, the, the risk-averse nature of the, of the, of the investment culture, I think that's where it all, it all comes together. Thank you, thank you. Let's maybe mix the, the two following one together, starting again with Jack. You know, we, we all know, I think that's not specific to Japan, but, but there, is, there are, when you're a large institutional investor, a series of, of buckets or portfolio you may allocate to a given asset class, and to this asset class will be a yield expectation, right? How, how does it work in, uh, in, in Japan? Is there any specificities to the Japanese market? And how do you ensure that you have a match between, you know, the bucket they want to, or they can to put you into, and the yield you can offer them? Sure. So I think, um, you know, many Japanese investors, um, they, they may be quite extreme in, in terms of their bucket. It's either fixed income or it's alternative. So if you're not meeting the requirement for their alter- alternatives, which could be, let's say, in the high single digits or even double digits, then, you know, you're basically out of their front front door. Um, so, for example, for a product like us where, you know, we're dealing with infrastructure debt and, uh, you know, with senior debt, I mean, the returns aren't that great, but it is a, a good alternative for their fixed income portfolio. So, we would need to go to investors where they have, you know, either created a bucket or fixed income alternatives where the return requirements are a little bit lower, or we, we discuss with them to maybe um, have them create a bucket so that they can fit a product such as, uh, such as like ours. Um, and so, I mean, in some cases, they, they could like the product very much. It, it makes sense mm-hmm. to them, but unfortunately, you just don't have the bucket. And for them to create one, it's going to take a year, two years. Um, and, you know, again, in Japan, I think that, that process, it's a little bit slower than I would say compared to other parts of the world. But, you know, we would need to wait for, for them to create those buckets. Right. Sergey, have you experienced that as well? I mean, this... Uh, uh, abs- this- yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, the only thing that I can add that is I, I agree with everything Jack said about this. The only thing I can add is that some of the buckets that have been created are extremely large. For example, you know, Japan Post announced that they're going to put uh, about 65 billion into alternatives over the next several years. Uh, and, you know, some of the other financial institutions have sort of announced similar goals which measure in billions. So that's good news for the alternative assets as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a whole, I think. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe, Jack, continuing with you, and then we'll switch to the gatekeeper with Sergey. Can you give us maybe when, when we look at, you know, the liquidity lockup period duration, I believe that you have very uh, long duration regarding your funds, the reporting cycle, the hedging requirements when, when sort of yen are being invested in other currencies, uh, and then the, the, the more general due diligence uh, and structuring questions. We'll keep the structuring for later. Can you comment a little bit on, on your, your experience on the, on the main specificities for Japanese institutional regarding those criteria? Sure. Uh, thank you, Stefan. So, uh, again, it, uh, again, it would depend on which bucket they, they use. But to give you an example, if they did uh, place the asset within, their, let's say, for, for example, a fixed income alternative uh, uh, bucket, they still want the aspects of, of a fixed income product, uh, which means that they still want, for example, the NAV to be reported at a certain time, be it you know, 
a few business days uh, in the beginning of the month or by the latest uh, within the month um, of the quarterly NAV, which, you know, for, for some private, um, you know, capital, uh, for private debt funds, it's just very difficult uh, to give out a NAV within that time frame. Uh, but mm-hmm. if it's going to fit in their budget, that that's the requirement, and that's something that a manager would have to consider uh, to make sure they can still consider uh, your product. And that goes the same with currency hedging. Again, if it's something that's closer to fixed income, uh, again, you know, they want right. to match their their uh, liability, so so they would want 100% hedge. Um, if they can't hedge it, then you know it goes to a different bucket where the returns are much higher, um, and they can no longer um, con- consider the product. Right. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sergey, we've, we've spoke a little bit about the, the role of a gatekeeper. Um, and this is something which is quite uh, specific as well to, to, to Japan. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about uh, the gatekeeper? What, when is the gatekeeper needed? What's the role of gatekeeper? Whether all these criteria we've been through together just now are also in the mind of the gatekeeper uh, are they in charge of checking all that for the institutional investor that is uh, that is behind them? And then uh, maybe a little bit of, you know, Japanese gatekeepers versus foreign gatekeepers. We see quite a number uh, that established themselves in, uh, in, uh, in Japan over the past years, um, responding to this appetite for alternatives. Um, so we would be interested in your view on that. And, and then we'll ask Jack as well his view on that from from. Uh, from his perspective, because he used to be a gatekeeper, right, with uh, with Mizuo at the time. Sergey. Uh, sure, Stefan. The um, uh, definitely all of these things that we've mentioned uh, until now are very high on the minds of gatekeepers, and they're in charge of uh, basically implementing all of these preferences. As I mentioned in the beginning, there's generally two types of gatekeepers. You know, those employed by very large financial institutions. You know, GBIF, Japan Post, and so on. And very often those would be very large domestic asset managers working in tandem with very large foreign asset managers. Uh, you know, for example, mm-hmm. for infrastructure, there would be a domestic and a foreign asset manager. They would have a slightly different focus on their work in tandem um, depending on the, on the specific strategy. So these would typically, you know, the exact numbers are typically not disclosed but it's, it's safe to assume that there are billions sort of portfolios are measured in billions and that they are investing very large tickets for separately managed accounts um, that go into uh, into specific managers within that strategy. So those are extremely sort of high high level um, you know, professional organizations. And then you look at the other end of the spectrum where people have to have a gatekeeper uh, because of the otherwise it would be difficult for them to access foreign markets. It would be difficult for them to access uh, you know materials in the English language and so on. So, for example, legally mm-hmm. in Japan, a pension fund is supposed to have a gatekeeper. You cannot, you cannot uh, pitch directly to the pension fund. So, the pension fund, the requirements to become a gatekeeper is uh, you have to have a domestic, a, a so-called discretionary investment management license. Um, mm-hmm. The abbreviation for that is DIM. There are about 300 DIM registered DIM organizations in Japan. Not all of them function as gatekeepers because there are different uses for that license. But those that do typically, you know, perform, uh, they are seem to have, they're deemed to have the fiduciary responsibility for investing the assets of the pension fund. And in fact, there is also a trust bank in the picture with the trustee of the pension fund assets 
and very often the portfolio is entrusted to the gatekeeper, but the actual investment is is performed by uh, by the trust bank. Uh, foreign versus um, uh, foreign versus Japanese, I would say you know uh, when you look at pension consultants, who are somewhat different because you know not, they're not necessarily gatekeepers in that sense, but you know there are some domestic pension consultants. There are some also foreign pension consultants that are very well represented here with large offices. And, um, you know, once again, there are Japanese asset management firms and foreign asset management firms. As long as they're licensed in Japan, they can all perform this role. Thank you. Uh, Jack, what, uh, what, what was your experience? I mean, as a group, you had a gatekeeping activity within, within the Mizuho group. Actually, one of my first meetings with, uh, with, uh, with you uh, was a meeting with your, with your gatekeeping team, if I recall correctly. So uh, how, how, how would you describe the role of the gatekeeper, I mean, a Japanese gatekeeper, as far as you're concerned? Sure. Maybe just a correction. I actually personally have never worked as a, as a, as a capacity of a gatekeeper. But uh, as an entity, so asset management, one alternative investments, we, we have the gatekeeper teams, and then we have our team, um, right. and we're in charge of the infrastructure investments, and uh, you know we're basically GPs. Um, but my experience would be that even if we are uh, an investment manager um, in Japan, uh, we were you know managing our own fund. Um, if we want to pitch to pension fund clients, um, we would, I mean, they would still require a, a gatekeeper. And of course, um, you know, with a different team uh, having the gatekeeper role, um, you know, we can do it all, all, all ourselves. So we, the team that does the gatekeeping does the gatekeeping role, and then we as the investment manager uh, will perform that uh, that role. But it's not um, automatic. Um, as Sergey mentioned, there is fiduciary duty uh, because it is a discretionary uh, mandate. So we still have to go through the whole process. Um, just in order to get our own fund across to a pension fund and client. And for example, if their preferred gatekeeper is not us and someone else, uh, we would still have to go through that keeper, that, that gatekeeper in order to get our uh, own product across. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification as well. Um, now, there was a part which was more on the structuring. Um, on which I will be extremely quick, um, just to, to mention that in Luxembourg, we do have two types of structure that are increasingly popular uh, in, in, in Japan, and both Jack and Sergey have what we call reserved alternative investment fund rates, uh, which they are using for the Japanese market. And we um, wanted just to shed some light on, on, on this vehicle, as well as the special limited partnership, the SLP, uh, which you see there on the slide. Uh, it mentions this, the last official number, 880, but uh, if you look at all those that have been set up since the last official count, we probably uh, exceed 2,500 2, SLPs. Um, this is basically the entry-level vehicle, which is by all means similar to a, a Cayman Limited Partnership uh, with a number of uh, advantages. Obviously, uh, you can build a substance in Luxembourg with your GP, you can benefit from double tax treaties by having the right uh, structuring within and underneath your special limited partnership. And on top of this, uh, you can be AIFMD compliant by uh, plugging in an AIFM uh, when you reach the size that, that requires you to do so or if you decide to do so. So just wanted to, to mention that that's one of the vehicles that's, that's progressively taking over to a number of managers that were 
considering Cayman, but now are dealing with the economic substance requirements, with the blacklisting in the Cayman, and with a number of other issues over there, and the, certainly the difficulty to build a substance uh, and gain access to double tax treaties, and are selecting Luxembourg in order to uh, create their new fund vehicle. With a lot of that, you will see a lot of detail on that, as well as the tax features on this slide. Now, the Reserved Alternative Investment Fund is, is something which you might have heard as well. So it's a, it's a vehicle that's a bit more uh, recent, and it's a tremendous success in Luxembourg um, among the alternative investment fund managers, basically a fund that is a, a, a real platform in which you can create a variety of sub-funds that has all the uh, features of a fund uh, as we were doing them in a regulated way, while well, this one being not regulated. It's AISMD compliant as well by law, so here it's not an option, but it's an obligation, but it's an advantage as well, obviously. And this kind of structure is extremely popular and comes as a, as a very good uh, uh, choice when you are benefiting from the umbrella concept where you can uh, create a number of sub-funds uh, that will accommodate your strategies or your investors um, and, and sort of scale up that structure in, uh, in an AIFMD compliant manner. So that's, I would not say much more on that other that those two vehicles are really the most interesting one for Japanese um, um, institutional uh, willing to invest in alternative asset class. And they're increasingly popular among them because they are seeing uh, increasingly those vehicles being presented to them for investment. I wanted to share with you this one because it's kind of one way to, uh, to structure uh, investment vehicles and investment platforms for Japanese managers. And then I'll let Sergey and, and, uh, and Jack comment on that and conclude. Um, but here it gives you an idea of what, what we would be uh, suggesting uh, a Japanese manager that wants to structure a product for a series of Japanese investors is to have a feeding vehicle, a feeder vehicle that will accommodate each in its own sub-fund Japanese investors with the specific features that need to uh, be uh, uh, achieved in order to satisfy those investors, having this feeder fund registered in Japan, uh, also without entering into the detail, but most likely an FCP because it would fulfill the requirements uh, with regards to the securities license that you need to have in Japan to sell the product. And there are two licenses, and they can sell only different type of products. And FCP ticks the box for one of these uh, licenses, and this is why FCPs are so popular in Japan. So you would set that up as an FCP rate uh, with a variety of sub-funds. And underneath, you would have a, a master fund, which can be a CCAP rate, uh, with strategies uh, within each sub-fund. And as you can see on the slide, you can then feed with these feeder sub-fund into strategy one, which could be PE uh, strategy two, which could be hedge fund strategy three, which could be infrastructure or other things uh, according to your needs. And you can even in between the master rate structure platform and the investment have the relevant uh, uh, structuring in order to make this uh, even more tax efficient, both those rates being subject only to a, a one basis point subscription tax. So that, that gives you an idea on how you can structure a very efficient double-layer platform for Japanese investors, keeping control of the strategy at master level and accommodating the needs of your investors at feeder level and having this registered in, in, uh, in Japan. 
maybe going from, from you, Jack, to you, Sergey, uh, a, a few words on, on this kind of structure. I think you're both familiar with RAVES. Uh, maybe you could share on that and a little bit on, on your experience with Luxembourg. Then I'll let you both conclude because we are exceeding a little bit, but, but the very good thing is that pretty much all our attendees are still on the line with us, so uh, I think that uh, they have all our attention. Jack. Thank you, Stefan. Um, yes, um, in terms of the structure, our second fund, which was launched in 2018, we, we used the Luxembourg uh, rate structure. Um, very similar to this one, where we had a feeder structure, uh, feeder fund, uh, feeding in the the capital from our Japanese investors, then investing into the master fund, and then uh, to our individual uh, infrastructure debt um, investments. And uh, it, it's worked very well for us. Uh, we have a global strategy, so so we we invest in jurisdictions starting from you know Southeast Asia, Europe, Middle East, uh, North and South America. Uh, and you know, for every jurisdiction that that we've done, uh, this structure has has worked um, uh, very well uh, for us in terms of investment and and also our, our marketing efforts uh, with Japanese investors. Thank you, Sergey. How about you and your experience uh, with the race? Uh, yes, definitely, Stefan. The Tokyo Capital, we've uh, we've historically had a vast variety of different structures uh, for our invest investment in Europe. The reason being is, you know, we have we still have legacy vehicles, which are French vehicles, and also some Luxembourg vehicles, and 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 some other as well. Um, the 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 historically the the almost all of the assets from the group used to come from European investors, and in recent years this balance has changed significantly. In that we have started to see a lot of capital inflows from investors overseas, including investors in Asia and in Japan. And we find that the Luxembourg structures actually provide a very good common denominator, which allow us to efficiently manage the investments. And at the same time, also, they work for the, uh, for the investors um, who are giving the, us their money. And we are looking, so the, our, latest, our latest flagship funds have actually um, all been Luxembourg vehicles, you know, the, the, the race. Uh, type and we are also looking specifically for Japan at uh, how we can efficiently work with feeder fund structures in order to accommodate um, in order to accommodate some of the specific investor needs you know Japanese yen currency hedging and and, and things like that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well th thank you very much maybe a question to to both of you if you would like to give a, a word of conclusion uh, as to uh, what we've been discussing and maybe looking forward through the COVID-19 and, uh, and the activities that are uh, waiting for you uh, in the coming weeks. And then I'll, I'll, I'll conclude uh, for myself, maybe Jack and Sergey, and then, and then I conclude. Sure, thank you, Stefan. Maybe I can address some of the, some of the the questions that popped up uh, popped up as well. So, I mean, in terms of COVID-19, um, yes. So we we are looking forward to to the state of emergency being uh, lifted, um, you know, very soon. Uh, maybe not Tokyo today, but at least in the May, we we hope it's lifted. Um, because again, we we haven't been able to physically meet our investors for mm -hmm. uh, over a month now. Um, you know, we we had to do our quarterly report through the phone, and you know, we we do want to uh, you know get get the physical meeting in place. As I think in Japan culturally, uh, meeting in person is uh, is very important uh, for for business. Um, 
And in terms of our, in, in terms of uh, you know infrastructure, um, I, I forgot to mention the regions, uh, but if I, if I, if you allow me to mention it now, I, I think for Japanese investors, it's still very much an OECD focused um, investor. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't like exotic strategies or exotic jurisdictions. So, uh, for example, uh, Europe, um, U.S. Um, they they put uh, a lot of allocation um, to, to to those regions. Um, so I think for for us, um, you know, we're looking to do uh, mostly OECD as well. If not, we'll find some way to kind of cover uh, the political uh, risk. And then maybe just finally, in, in terms of the um, in terms of the structure, um, although I don't want to always compare uh, Luxembourg structures to, to Cayman, but um, I would say yes. Traditionally, yes, Japanese investors did, uh, you know, prefer um, Cayman because of the cheaper, uh, cheaper costs. But I believe the rate structure uh, does give, um, you know, the flexibility uh, that's need, uh, that you know that's needed uh, for for Japanese investors. Um, we do not need to go to the CSSF um, um, to to get it approved, so we can launch it uh, as quickly or um, basically at the same timing as we, we could launch uh, as Cayman Fund. And again. Um, you know, I think for our second fund, it's worked very well. And I think going mm-hmm. forward, uh, we would most likely use the, use the same structure again. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Sergey. Uh, yes, Stefan, thank you. I, I'd like to address also some of the questions that um, that have been raised very, very briefly. I think there's been, a, there's been an important question on impact investing in Japan. I would say that there's been, we've seen a lot of attention going to impact investing from the top of the of that investment pyramid, if you like, so GPIF has been extremely vocal about you know the, their dedication to this particular um, investment type, and uh, you know some some others have followed suit, but I think it hasn't really got through to the uh, to the mid levels and the and the and the sort of so to speak you know the smaller institutional investors. But I think as everybody you know sort of tends to follow the lead of the large institutions. I think in the coming years, we'll definitely see much more attention to the impact investing. In fact, the PRI organization, the Principles for Responsible Investor Investment, has a conference, it's, its annual conference scheduled this year in Japan in November. We still have to see whether they're going to go ahead uh, with mm-hmm. that or not. Um, mm-hmm. If we Do we have time to address a couple of more questions in the... Um, uh, I think that that would probably need to be uh, off offline, uh, Sergey. Um, I think that we could do we could do, and I hear you. And I think ESG was a, a recurring theme during this uh, this entire COVID-19 experience we've all been through. Uh, it was already there, uh, and I remember having heard the GPIF also uh, very vocal about their allocation to to ESGs. Let's uh, let's see whether we could do something together on specifically on ESG. Uh, for next time. Otherwise, we'll keep the question for um, off, offline. Uh, I would like to thank you, both of you, Jack, uh, Sergey, for having uh, spent this hour with us. Uh, we uh, exceeded a bit the time, but pretty much everybody stayed on the line. So I think that they were really uh, looking and listening to you. Um, I think that we've learned a lot about the structure of the Japanese institutional market. For me, it was extremely interesting to have it from uh, your first-hand experience dealing with them on a daily basis. Um, I wish you to stay very safe uh, in uh, Tokyo, and I wish also that you can uh, get back to work uh, in the office pretty soon and that we can all travel again. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Japan very soon. And I thank you to the 350-plus people that were on the line with us for this, this hour together. 
and I wish uh, you um, also a safe uh, a stay in uh, wherever you are and uh, visit our website, visit our apps, and I say to you, see you next time for the next webinar. Uh, thank you very much, Jack. Thank you very much, Sergey. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Stefan. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this webinar. You can register for our next webinars on the event and training page of our website www.arent.com.